Chapter Twelve of A Water Biography by Robert C. Leslie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve. I take part in a naval review, a night in a railway station, the pride of the morning, sou'westers, oilskins, and summer toilets, a crowded landing place, H.M.S. Achilles' boat stops the way. I get on board an ironclad dry. Captain Vansittart and his ship. A sail in a man-o'-war's cutter. To Spithead and back. A long row. I leave Woolstone. Reason for doing so. Go to deal. The dinghy makes her first appearance on that beach. I add to her freeboard and cruise in her in the downs, etc. Deal boatmen and their gear. The lugger tiger. A lugger split in two. Ship on fire in the downs. A heavy gale. Wind force. Deal boatman's cuddy. Our neighbors at deal. J. W. M. Turner at Margate, the Van Cook lifeboat, Sandown Castle, etc. We leave Deal, take a villa at Erith. Why, economy and advantages of moving. The dinghy sails for Erith with our cat on board. Boating at Erith. Great increase of steam traffic. John Brett on the river. Lower Thames compared with Upper. The last of the flood round Crayford Ness. Peter boats, etc. Pick up a capsized canoeist. An old waterman's prophecy verified. I return to Southampton, sell my old dinghy, a short history of her, her untimely end at Chelsea. My second son had not long joined his first ship, the Achilles, when, as the papa of a real live midshipman, I got an invitation to see the review of the fleet in honor of the Sultan on July seventeenth, eighteen sixty seven, and to be in time for the boat from the Achilles in the morning, I had to take the last train from Southampton the night before, which arrived at Portsmouth soon after midnight, where, in company with many others, I spent an hour or two before daybreak in the railway station after which, refreshed by a cup of coffee, 
I strolled down to South Sea Beach. It was a dirty, fresh, blowing morning, and soon after six a.m., seeing a boat leave the Achilles, I walked back through Point Gate to a sally port, where I found, even at that early hour, a crowd of elaborately dressed ladies and gentlemen, all waiting for boats from the respective ships named in their cards of invitation. There was a small something, the pride of the morning we called it, falling with a wide stretch of gray and white broken water between this place of embarkation and the two extended lines of men-of-war at Spithead. And as one after another the ship's boats dashed in, the wet, shiny oilskins of their crews contrasted curiously with the summer toilets of the assembled sisters, cousins, and aunts. The water in front of the quay was now a mere jumble of heavy, rolling steam launches, ship's cutters, and smart gigs, reminding one of a crowded street blocked with gentlemen's carriages near one of the great London theatres of the opera. Only in place of the names or titles of the owners of carriages, it was the name of the man-o'-war to which each boat belonged that was called out by the party waiting for her. It was almost a dead noser out to the fleet, and as the steam launches started with two or three boatloads of guests in tow, it was something like a case of come under my plady, as officers gave up their oilskins to the more unprotected among the ladies. It was a work of time before a party for any particular ship got fairly off, there being almost as much of a scramble among the boats as that attending the embarkation of passengers in an Italian steamer by the boatmen inside the mole at Naples, boats whose party had not arrived stopping the gangway, and those wanted being the outside ones, which led to much chaff among the different officers in charge, especially if one of them was at all slow in shipping his party. Now, sir, when you are ready, we are or perhaps you'd kindly drop astern if you're not in a hurry, and make room for those who are. There's plenty of time for you, etc. The launch from the Achilles was one of the last to arrive, and had to wait some time before she could get alongside the quay. I was lucky enough to find a corner in her forward, under a tarpaulin tilt, and got on board the ship dry. But from the way the spray flew over her afterpart and the two boats in tow, many new bonnets and hats, in spite of a cloud of umbrellas, must have been ruined in the short trip out to Spithead. 
once on board the great ironclad and inside the shelter of your high bulwarks one hardly knew except for the hum of it among the lofty spars and rigging that it was blowing a double reef topsail breeze admiral van Sittart, then in command of the achilles was a most kindly host to all on board his ship that day and i spent a pleasant quarter of an hour in his pretty cabin hung with flowers and bird cages while a pair of white cockatoos roamed at large about it lunch for the friends of sub-lieutenants and middies was served in their large airy gun-room and though no daylight ever penetrated the apartment below where my boy slung his hammock and kept his chest i came to the conclusion that in such a ship commanded by a man who took as much interest in the youngsters as captain vansittart did there might be harder times at sea than those of a middy on board h m s achilles the fleet was anchored in two long lines the northern one formed of ironclads which in those days were mostly full-rigged sea-going ships and the southern of the old wooden auxiliary screw line of battle ships by the queen's desire none of the ships moved that day so that the review was merely a procession of the royal yacht the admiralty yacht and others up and down between the men of war the wind blew hard all day and in order to make sure of an early train for southampton i took advantage of one of the ship's cutters starting for shore and with two other visitors dropped into her and made my first and last trip under sail in a man-o'-war's boat it was while this fleet with that valuable middy in it lay here that i boarded the achilles in my own boat one saturday to get leave for him until monday i had a long beat against a southeast wind to spithead which after leaving the achilles in the afternoon died away and with a foul tide we barely held our own for two hours so that i had to row the boat nearly twenty miles in a calm before reaching the itchen about eight thirty that evening i have been spoken of by friends as unstable as water but it was the then doubtful character of the water supply and other insanitary matters which led to my leaving woolstone and after a week or two spent in looking round we pitched upon a large low-rented house upon the north end of deal beach to which we moved our furniture and the dinghy by rail there was nothing but a roadway and a narrow strip of shingle between this house and the downs indeed so sea-beaten 
was this bit of beach, that it was only in finest weather that I dare leave my little boat upon it at night, while every spring tide the sea passed through the shingle under the house and welled up in a lane upon lower ground behind it. In spite of this, the house itself was perfectly dry, the basement being filled in with concrete two feet thick. My little boat was then the only one on the beach not owned by a professional boatman and her first appearance there soon brought a group of the north end boatmen round her i had rigged her up with a lug mainsail and a foresail she was two feet six inches shorter than the smallest class of punts on the beach and the first time i sailed in her the men were surprised to find she was able to rather more than hold her own among them to windward i found beach-work at deal even in this small boat comparatively easy after the heavier seas of sidmouth but when out in the strong tide-rips of the downs i should have been glad of a larger boat and in order to better face this kind of sea, I added to the dinghy's freeboard a four-and-a-half-inch wash streak. This was done by a local boat builder who was curious to know where she was built, and when told, said, Well, I allowed she was built by a shipwright, because everything is so strong about her. Some months afterwards, I found the same boat builder on the beach going carefully over my boat with his two-foot rule, and he told me he was measuring her in order to give a price for one like her to be built for an old sea captain who had met her off the South Sand Headlight Ship, turning to wind like a little horse. I soon established pleasant relations with the boatmen, and found plenty of handy bare-legged deal urchins to help at a launch or haul up. From our windows we could see the good winds, and in gales of wind through a glass all that went on upon them, and among the shipping in the downs, while in fine weather after she was deepened i was able to be off and out among the shipping in a few minutes or to enjoy in her longer cruises to the south sand head one way and ramsgate harbour the other owing to the more permanent character of the beach and sheltered position of the downs the deal men were able to establish upon it far better capstans and launching gear than was possible at sidmouth while their boats were all larger and more heavily ballasted than the little sidmouth or the beer-head luggers the crews of all these larger luggers or cat-boats and galley-punts had nothing to do with the work of hauling them up 
which was left to gangs of old boatmen employed by the boat owners at a fixed rate of six pence for each trip on the other hand the deal boatmen often kept the sea for a week or more at a time tending ships and pilots up the thames to gravesend or down channel beyond dungeness i remember missing one of the largest luggers the tiger for more than a fortnight and was told she had remained nearly the whole time under dungeness fearing to run home through the heavy sea off the admiralty pier dover while had it been a headwind she would have been back at once i saw one of these largest new luggers hauled up in halves having split from end to end after a bump upon the sand in launching with an anchor and chain on board for a vessel in the downs a few days of strong southerly wind filled the downs and the ships then seen from our windows at night looked like the street lamps of a great city and one of the strangest sights i ever saw was when a large italian bark in making a flare-up signal for assistance took fire from a bucket of paraffin capsizing on her quarter-deck and breaking away from her anchors off walmer drove in flames through the whole fleet of ships to leeward of her and burnt out upon the goodwinds near the gull light vessel her crew were all saved by deal boats it was blowing almost a hurricane from southwest and it was wonderful to watch the little black storm sails of the luggers and galley punts by the light of the fire and the moon as they flitted in and out among the crowded fleet of tossing shipping there was a heavy sea rolling in all the time and the wind being offshore the crests of the waves were torn off in whirling clouds of spoon drift as the long lines of swell ran in on the beach the force of the wind that night must have been great for a window was blown in at the back of our house and the glass carried eighteen feet across the room while the strength of two people was required to force open the door of the room. Yet these weatherly open boats were at work through it all under canvas. The larger luggers, though without any true deck, are provided with a kind of movable cuddy or large box, fitted in them between the main and fore thwarts, into which there is room for four men to creep in and sleep the whole thing is perfectly watertight with a small sliding door aft and two little sliding windows forward this gives the men a chance to keep some dry clothes and food on board when out cruising for more than a day though number five sand down terrace was a substantial well-built house 
we soon discovered that all the rooms facing the downs with a nor'easter in winter were almost untenable but we had for next-door neighbors two old ladies who had lived in the terrace for years and when we complained of this to them they said why you've not pasted up your windows and explained that from november to the end of march every chink of theirs facing the sea was hermetically closed by strips of cartridge paper carefully pasted over them these old ladies wore short waists and turbans and when the most able-bodied of them got under way for a morning cruise on the breezy esplanade there was something about her as she rolled along under a big parasol which always reminded one of an eighty-gun ship of the line of the georgian error in full sail they belonged also to that extinct nerveless race of women who liked and encouraged barrel-organ grinders so that for an hour or so of every day of our stay at deal the rugged roar of the surf was mingled or softened by popular airs of the period i was also much interested to find that as natives of margate they knew j w m turner as a young man when he used to visit friends of theirs there to see a young lady to whom he was then engaged to be married the old ladies took no interest in turner the artist and spoke of him only as a poor delicate youth who was not expected to live long and said that the young lady's relations wished the engagement broken off on that account in a motherly way these two elderly sea nymphs took an interest in my little boat and her crew as indeed they did in all the boats and men who hailed from the north end of the beach a tarred sea-walk extended from our house northward to the ruins of sandown castle much of which then lay in huge masses of masonry against which in a gale the sea broke furiously it had lately been partially destroyed by gunpowder between this ruin and our terrace the van cook lifeboat was housed the gift of e w cook the marine painter but i heard a year or two after we left deal that owing to the rapid encroachment of the sea this boat and house had to be removed further inland before living here i had often read of people being blown down or carried off their legs by wind but scarcely realized such stories until one evening i had to drop on all fours on this esplanade in order to keep myself from being blown off it into the surf on the beach at such times 
all the smaller boats, including my own, were lashed to a lamp or other post to keep them from being blown away, which reminds me that at Sidmouth I once saw a sixteen-foot boat, which had been lashed alongside a post, actually impaled upon it, with the post sticking through her bottom, the wind having turned her over on top of it. We remained two years at Deal, arriving there in August 1867 and leaving in August 1869 for Erith, where we took a commodious but jerry-built villa on high ground near Bexley Heath. My first plan for this move was to charter a Thames barge and load our things into her at Deal, but the uncertainty of the date of arrival and expense of transshipment at Erith decided me to trust them to Pickford and Company and the rail. We undertook this move, I think, with a vague notion that Erith was near London and the art world, but had not been there long before we found that practically this was not the case. Some persons may say here that we were wasting our substance on railways and riotous moving. I have come to the conclusion that this was not true in our case, and that an ordinary family trip for change of air costs more money and is not half so amusing or instructive as a household removal of even a hundred miles by road or rail. While to those not too indolent to enjoy it, the packing and unpacking of furniture, pictures, and china and their rearrangement in a fresh house is a form of recreation, both mental and bodily, far exceeding those afforded by an ordinary seaside watering place. Our new villa, though on high ground, was not too far from the Thames for boating, and I had a mooring laid near the pier at Erith for my dinghy which made the voyage from Deal of eighty miles in charge of an old boatman who asked eighteen shillings for the job, or about seven shillings less than she would have cost by rail. He left Deal in her about seven the same evening that I did, and turned up at our new house the day after my arrival there, with the domestic cat who had been his companion in his arms. This little cat started carefully packed in a hamper, but the old man said, He soon let her out of that after getting out to sea. And that puss at once made herself at home on board. I had not sailed on the Thames for nearly twenty years, and found it greatly changed, especially above Erith, Tripcot, and Galleon's reaches, where both the air and water were far from sweet-smelling, 
while just before and after high water a long close procession of screw steamers up and down the river made tacking across it under sail almost as risky as crossing the traffic of a crowded london street would be on a tricycle this state of things did not however last long and after tide time the river became comparatively clear of steamers when in company with my old red-sailed friends the thames and rochester barges there was plenty of room to tack across the river from erith brands and purfleet up and down longreach to greenhithe gravesend or through the lower hope into sea reach i had the pleasure on one such trip of john brett's company the day proved almost calm it was indeed a day of reflections and i was amused as we drifted with the tide past purfleet at a mental note he made aloud upon the effect of light and shade on the low ripples of edge softening edge gradation that's the main thing about them owing to the enormous amount of varied human interests concentrated on its banks and afloat on its crowded stream i have always felt that aristocratically the tidal waters of the thames rank far above those of the upper river which indeed would be a mere purling stream flowing past smooth-shaven lawns with no more human interest attached to it than a hampshire trout stream but for the locks and weirs by which it is canalized and connected by barge and flyboat with the world's great tidal highway and i have been much interested of late years in the rediscovery so to say of this vast mine of artistic wealth by artists like whistler and wiley while among writers nothing can be finer to my mind than richard jeffrey's article venice in the east end i have seen much of modern venice myself but never saw anything there to surpass the picturesque variety of colour and stately river bustle of the last of a flood as one after another homeward-bound steamers and great clippers in tow of tugs come sweeping into erith brands round crayfordness snugly sheltered under which like a gypsy encampment by a roadside unconcerned and heedless of all this flow of passing commerce lies a fleet of little thames peterboats and shrimpers all covered in forward with dark blanket tilts with blue smoke curling from a black stove-pipe poked through them then by hugging the low green kentish foreshore with a leading wind there were five miles of straight sailing down longreach 
to green hythe and fiddler's reach clear of steam traffic but beyond the ever-changing variety and bustle of passing craft it was tame sailing even in a small boat after the downs or the solent and except picking up a man who had capsized his canoe in a race one windy day i met with no personal mishaps or adventures worth mentioning during the two years i remained at erith before leaving southampton an old waterman there strongly advised me not to part with my new half-deck boat because said he you be sure to be back here again soon i asked why he thought so but like a true prophet he would or could give no reason for his opinion except that people always did come back the old fellow was right and after two years when we left our commodious new villa at erith for a substantial old red brick house in moira place southampton i soon felt the want of a larger and faster boat than my dinghy she made the voyage from erith on the deck of a steamer from which she was safely lowered into her old quarters at southampton docks she however four years later again returned to the thames after being sold to a southampton boat builder who resold her to a boating man at chelsea where i was told by my friend landseer mackenzie who took an interest in this little boat she ended a long boat life of over thirty years in eighteen eighty nine by getting crushed under a floating landing stage when i built her in eighteen fifty three her material cost me four pounds and i sold her for the same money sixteen years afterwards if she could only speak every boat has a water biography of her own and i have gone rather fully into the life history of this little one as some encouragement to any amateur carpenter who may be inclined to take up that most fascinating of handicrafts boat building end of chapter twelve